if you please, and open them um, to the book of Ephesians. And uh, we're going to continue, probably finish our study of chapter 1 today. At least that's um, the goal and the intention. I know that the past few weeks have been several folks traveling and and, uh, elsewhere. Of course, if you're not here, you can't hear this, but um, some are ill. Let me encourage you to follow along with us. The only way we actually can mature together as a fellowship is to be present when we can at certain times. And uh, I know we we have purposefully de-emphasized um, meetings. So many churches are built on the fact that um, you have to have meetings. I believe you're a believer 24-7 whether you're here or not. Um, there isn't anyone across the face of this earth that hasn't, however, realized that when they cannot meet with other believers, their life in the Lord is weakened and hindered, hindered and less rich. So if, you, uh, if when you're traveling you can't be here, these, uh, at this point the messages, and that's about all, but the messages are up and you can download those and listen to them and at least you can have some continuity with all the other folks as we go through the word together. Um, this, w- this week we're going to talk about three things to know. Three things to know. Let me, let me begin, begin reading uh, really with verse 15 and we're going to read down through the end of the chapter. For this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I did not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of your Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So that whole section, uh, again, one of it's more than one sentence, but still a long kind of carry on uh, elongated thought to the apostle about the apostles prayer Um, please remember that he uses some of the earlier verses to lay out a list of blessings uh, gifts and and, uh, provisions however you want to refer to it that are all part of God's plan from prehistory none of this is some random thing that's happening It's not only part of God's plan, 
It's all from God's grace. And these things are for believers. There's a lot of um, sloppy theological kind of understanding of Scripture that these things were written to everybody. They're written for everybody to know, but these promises are for believers. You, you, we, we can't... Uh, people who are not part of Christ cannot claim these things. They're, they're those things that are... These riches that he's going to talk about here, and we'll talk about in a minute, those riches are what's inside the door. They're not for everybody just to, to randomly have or claim. And we can't claim the blessings of Christ without the person of Christ. So he begins this prayer of thanksgiving for us. Uh, if, and that is specifically for these Ephesians, and by extension, all believers. As a matter of fact, this this um, uh, letter was probably passed around to other other communities um, for believers, and that's basically what I just said. So it is a review. Um, this is kind of a review of the blessings of salvation by faith. Now, in verse 18, and this is kind of where we take, uh, left off. We talked about this somewhat last week. We're going to talk about it again here. Verse 18, he says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Now, my, my, uh, my Bible says eyes of your hearts. What, what do your translations say? You'll have to speak up. Okay, the eyes of your understanding. Use the word eyes. Okay. Okay, that's what mine says. Thank you. He's got the same one I've got. Anybody else have something different? Okay. All right. So, um, in, it, to the ancients, the heart, we, you know, we, we think about it as an organ because we got this scientific stuff. Although we also use it, you know, we, we talk about love proceeding from our hearts and, and, you know, Valentine's Day, hearts are all over the place and all that stuff. But to the ancients, the heart was the seat of the intellect and the will. And if, if you remember this, if you read, if you have the old King James and you've read the King James, the bowels, you know, your gut was the seat of emotion. So when he says this, eyes of your understanding is a good translation. Um, eyes of, eyes of your heart, like mine has, is, is, is more literal. Eyes of your understanding probably gives you a better understanding of it. His, his focus is on what we know and understand. And that's one of the reasons the word heart may be a little bit confusion, confusing, which is one I have, because often we feel that our that the heart is the seat of our our feelings, and that's quite contrary to what the Apostle Paul's talking about. He's not talking about feelings or emotions. He's talking about what we know. He's talking about truth. Feelings are are temporary and they're transitory. Truth is forever. And if and if we understand it, it's it's solid, and therefore it's not this 
up and down sort of thing. We'll see later, and we already referenced it here a few weeks ago, that when he, he talks about us growing up into the stature of the measure of fullness of Christ, then we're not back and forth or talked, uh, tossed by every wind of, every wind of doctrine. Everything that that comes down, because there's a there's a truth there. We know certain things. Now, <clears throat> what we know affects what we feel, and that's important. And that's what, that's what we're aiming at. So, uh, th- this gospel is a truth, and we we use the word. It's an indicative. It's it's a reality, and when we <clears throat> when we um, share the God, I mean. Um, all right. So, so many, so so many times in modern, even in evangelical circles, the uh, you know there are altar calls and there is special music, and emotions are played upon. And not to say that the gospel doesn't affect our emotions. Let me say this once again: what we know affects what we feel. What we know can change the way we feel. But we don't feel it first and then know it. We know it. It's a reality. It is a truth. It is not a feeling. So he says, I I want you to understand certain things. Now let me give you an example. Um, Elisha's servant comes to him and says, Elisha, what are we going to do? There's this this army out there. And the, the calm and cool collected said to his servant, said, Lord, open his eyes. So that he can see. You can read about it in Second Kings. And when he did, he saw that the hills were surrounded. And we got, you know, the, the famous statement, those who are with us are greater than those who are with them. There's more for us than there are, there are for them. And that was, that was to uh, cause him to know exactly what was going on so he would no longer have fear. So... Um, Man, we, we, we live in a day that's just motivated by emotional responses. And um, our, our culture works to try to get those emotional... And I teased about this last week, about how happy the, hap, happy the people were that they had this thing that would take dampness out of their laundry room. You know, they were just grinning. And as, as a matter of fact, they were singing. Uh, they were so happy that there was no dampness in their laundry room. And you say, well, that's silly. Well, it is silly, except they're actually doing that stuff. I mean, they actually showed that. The reason they showed that is because in their studies, they figured out that that would cause me to know, you know, I would feel some connection to that, and I'd want to be happy too, and I'd go buy this product. So... You, you can you can deny it all you want, but the but the world out here is constantly bombarding us. And what the Lord wants us to, the experience the Lord wants us to have is that we would know certain things, so that when this bombardment comes or when times get difficult, we will have a truth to stand on and not be swayed by these temporary emotions. It's interesting that the Word of God is supposed to uh, touch our hearts and that we're supposed to see things. And I, I, I thought it was interesting. There's this story of those two on, the, uh, two on the road after the resurrection and they're walking along and 
all of a sudden, you, you know the story, don't you? Jesus shows up with them, and he says, what's wrong with you guys? You're kind of down in the mouth tonight. And they said, well, you, don't you know what happened? And then they, they explained. They, <laughs> it's, it's funny to me. We do this a lot, too. They explained all their problems about Jesus to Jesus. You know, they said, don't you know what happened? This guy come, we thought he was the Messiah, and they killed him. And, and, we're, on, and we're just all puzzled about this. And then, and then we heard some reports that maybe he was alive, and the Bible then says that Jesus began to open the Scriptures to them. And the, he ate dinner with them, and it, it, you know the story. In the process of his eating dinner and breaking bread, he disappeared and all of a sudden, they realized who it was. And then their testimony, one to another, was, did not our hearts burn within us? So while he's sharing about himself from Scripture, there is something going on. I, you know, I, I pray the same for you. There's nothing quite like the excitement of discovering God in God's Word where your thinking is alive and your mind is going places and, and it's alive with anticipation and it tingles with the goodness of God's truth. I pray that for you. Now, you're not going to get it if you don't get into the book. Bless our hearts. <laughs> All right. What does he want us to know? Look at verse 17. He says, I want you to know him. In the knowledge of him. Know more about Jesus. And we're going to, there's some specific things we're going to look at here, but the, the gist of this is to know more about Jesus. And, and, and basically that's what he goes on to tell them. Things that, about Jesus specifically and things about what Jesus has provided. So he gives three things. Hope, to which we're called. Um, uh, riches of our inheritance is the second thing. It's, both of those are in verse 18. And number 19, verse 19 talks about his power toward us. His power toward us. So let's look at the first one. Let's look at hope. So hope is found in verse 18. He says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Now, hope is also mentioned up in verse 12. So that you who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So, let's talk about hope. Usually, um, to, we're used to using this word as an expression of a positive but uncertain desire. And the emphasis comes from the one hoping. So I might say to you, I hope we have a mild winter. And we, we all understand this. We, we, have, we use this kind of terminology all the time. It's, it, it's my hope. It's my expression. You may say, I hope we have lots of snow. And now our hopes <laughs> are conflicting, Okay. And if you're praying for lots of snow, God have mercy on you. I don't know what's wrong with you, but if, if you are, you are. So, 
but but you understand that you don't have anything to do with that. It's just what you want. It's really what your desire. It's an expression of your desire, and usually it's it's it, usually it's a positive thing. But there's really no hope. There's nothing you can do about it. And that's not how this word is used in Scripture. It's it's completely different. In in the New Testament, this word is used about things that are rooted in Christ, about what God has already done. So rather than it being my emotional desire, a biblical hope is a focus on what God has done that is still coming to pass. So when, when he says here, what is the hope to which he has called you? It means that he's called it, he's called you to it, it is coming to pass. And, and because it's his calling and the gifts and callings of God are without repentance, it is going to happen. It's not just my, it's not just based on my expectation. Well, I sure hope it happens. It's, it, it, I, I can't control it whatsoever. This, this sentiment, this reality, and this is what, again, what Paul wants us to know, this reality is a thing that will come to pass that causes us inside to have certain, uh, uh, confidences and grace and growth, and we'll to talk more about that in just a, in just a little bit. And here, this hope, this hope is too broad and deep for me to get into the specifics of it. But if you, if you, uh, we'll talk more about some of it here in just a minute as we move down through this. But if you kind of lump together all of the benefits of salvation. Um, based on God's calling. His unstoppable plan that we talked about earlier. That's where we have our hope. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus, what? Blood and righteousness. That's why we sing those songs. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says we have a living hope. Again, um, uh, sometimes the King James used the word quick. Uh, it, it, it doesn't here, I don't believe, but it, it, it carries that whole connotation that this is not some static thing, that, that, that it's, it's alive, it, it hums with vitality. Titus chapter 2, verse 13 says, we have a blessed hope. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 11 says we have a sure hope. Hope is one of Paul's repeating themes. Faith, hope, and love. We know that, don't we? And the greatest of these is love. King James is faith, hope, and charity. And an, uh, an author from a few generations ago, Gene Getz, has wrote a, wrote a book about this, and, and he talks about how all those things are used. Paul uses these words over and over again as he writes these epistles where he, he prays that they'll have hope. It's what he's doing here. So, we have a hope, not just this sentiment that that this expectation of some positive thing, not just this sentiment that, that starts with me and ends with me and that I could do nothing out, nothing about. Our hope is based upon Jesus Christ and what 
Jesus Christ has done to satisfy the wrath of God, to fulfill the plan of God. It's part of that plan that was put into, uh, uh, that came about before the foundation of the earth, before the foundation of the world. So we have a hope. We have an inheritance. And um, let me read this. It says, Having your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So part, once again, believers. Note the adjectives. He says our inheritance is riches and glorious. So this, this inheritance is something we have now only in part. Um, there is more to come. A complete possession of all that is there will come later. And it's this um, hope of this inheritance that we're called to and that this inheritance is full of riches its treasure is glorious. There's, a, 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 there's an old figure of speech that can be used in a lot of different ways. And it says something like this. If all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. <laughs> so... Um, we we live here in this earth and we're to be in this world but not of it. But here we are and we're dealing with the issues of life. We, we're dealing with the weakness of others. We're dealing with the infirmity of the flesh. We're dealing with our own sin, our own tendency to sin, our own temptation. We may be dealing with our own anger, our own frustration, our own selfishness. We may have to, you know, constantly bring those words. So we're dealing with those things. We're dealing with the frustrations of the world, the things that go on around about us that actually we have no real control over. We're just kind of reacting to and, and, and trying to keep our equilibrium in the Lord when all those things go on. And in the process of doing all of that, we can forget that we don't know everything that's going on. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we know in part now and we see in part, but one day we're going we're gonna to know as we are known. See, there is an inheritance on the other side. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Let, let me read this to you, because this is good. It's even got the word in it. Good old John, he helped out my message by putting the proper word in this. <laughs> It, that, that is how you do this, isn't it? Uh, put the proper word in the text. First John chapter 1, excuse me, chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. And that's kind of what I was trying to explain to you with all this stuff that's going on in the world. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. 
But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So it's not just something that the Paul made up. It's Paul's theme. It's John's theme. Others talks about it. This this inheritance is something that we do not have yet, but we will have at one time. And this inheritance causes us, or at least it should, to lift our eyes from this earth and from all the things that are going around to the gifts that God has that await us. And, and John, we won't have time to look at all that today, but John, he puts quite a bit of emphasis how we're not to live for this world. He says, if we love the world, the love of God's not in us. And it is, in First Peter chapter 1, he talks about our inheritance, and he says, it is an inheritance incorruptible that will never fade away. Jesus kind of talks about this same thing when he says, lay up your treasure in heaven. What does, what does he say there? Where neither moth nor rust corrupts. Um, all, of the, all of the cities of mankind, all of the huge buildings, all of the towers, all the monuments will all crumble. They are not eternal. The Lord is Lord. He always has been. He will be, He will show Himself as such once again. And everything that we, folks, please think with me about this. I, I encourage you to think about this when you encounter some of this stuff. It's, it's, it's marvelous to go and say, look what man built. But at the same time, we need to have in the back of our mind, man built this, therefore it's not eternal. It will fall. It's interesting to go and look at some of the, the, some of the ruins of great civilizations and see that there were people there who did all of this, and we don't know where those people are now, and all that's left of what they did is gone. There's wisdom in the poem about Asmodeus. We we think that what we do and what's going on with us is the greatest thing that's ever happened, and yet we're discovering that there there, there are scientists who are trying to figure out what Greek fire was, and they haven't been able to figure it out yet. So they got this this weapon that was a couple thousand years old and we haven't figured out yet exactly what it is. We have an inheritance that is set for us. Because it's an inheritance, we don't have it yet. It's something that we will have. But it is reserved for us. It's incorruptible. It is full of riches and it is glorious. Now, here's the third thing. Power. And the apostle says, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? 
And then he goes on to describe that power some more. But look at the look at this. He says it's a it's immeasurable. He says it doesn't even say that. He says its greatness is immeasurable. Now, uh, if we wanted to get down into this, there's different words that's used for power and might, and three or four different words that are used here. We're not going to get down into all of that because it it doesn't really change the emphasis. The thing I want you to notice is that this power is used toward us. It, in other words, it is God is using his power on our behalf to work all around us as, it, as this world relates to us, as this circumstances relate to us. He's working all around us, and more importantly, he's working within us. Remember in chapter 2, it says that we are his workmanship. Um, one of the commentaries I read, um, the commentator, Boyce, said, Without God's power, no one would become a Christian. And that's kind of the root of this, folks. If you are a believer, it, it, it's because God touched you with his power in such a way that you could see and you could comprehend to whatever degree is part of this, Paul's praying that these believers would have more and more of it so that you could indeed produce faith in you so that you could become a believer. Now he says this power is immeasurable which means it's beyond our, our ability to categorize um, I mean, think about a measurement. If if it's a you know there's a usually if there's a if it's a linear thing there's a beginning and an end. So it goes from here to here. It's infinite, or excuse me, it's finite. If it's a if it's a weight, it starts with nothing and goes to whatever, and it ends there. So. You, you you put it on the you put it on the scale you you weigh out your measurement and when it gets to the, you stop because that's where it's supposed to stop you know, that's 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 what you're going to use you you've weighed it maybe it's maybe it's liquid and 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 you've got these graduations on your on your jug and you pour in until it gets it starts at the bottom where there's nothing and then it goes up and it stops where you stop it it's you can measure it this you cannot measure because there is no beginning and there is no end it is it is past our ability to find out its limits it's it's to us it's limitless the second thing is about this power it's it's the power that he used to raise Jesus from the dead. That's what it says in verse 20. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Um, now, I have to admit that, um, you know, and I read about this and... Uh, it wasn't touched in great detail in the commentaries that I read about resurrection power. And I think the reason it wasn't touched a lot was because it's not, we don't understand it. 
Now, it already says that this is immeasurable, that we're, you know, we're not, we're not going to be able to put limits on it. That's what a measurement is. It, it's, it, it's, uh, it, it's kind of past our ability to, to, to understand what it's like and what he did when he raised Jesus from the dead, except to know that he did it. Um, I remember years ago, I don't know if the kids are with us or not, but it was years ago, we went to the animal sanctuary and they had a chimpanzee there that took offense to me. And if you've ever seen one of these critters, uh, <laughs> who didn't like you, <laughs> uh, he was screeching and hollering and jumping and displaying and doing all this stuff. And they told me, they said that the average, now this was a chimpanzee, you know, uh, Tarzan's pet. What was his, I can't remember Tarzan's pet's name. But anyway, Tarzan's pet, you know. Cheetah? Why did he call a chimpanzee cheetah? Okay, that's what I thought, but I thought, I can't be right. All right, so anyway, they told us that, that the average mature chimpanzee is one-third stronger than the average human male. And that thing was up there jumping around, and I'm saying, I don't know how good this fence is. And then, and then I said to myself, I need a bigger gun. Uh, but it was kind of awesome to think about that thing. And he was springy. If, if, if you can picture this, he wasn't bulky. He was springy. He was bouncing and jumping. He also was loud. I, I, I really came away with a bad impression of chimpanzees from that whole experience. But my point is, is that his power was kind of awesome. And I've been to the zoo and I've looked at gorillas, you know, these huge mountain gorillas and the silverbacks and stuff. And I know they're I know they're stronger than chimpanzees, but they don't move around much. You know, they just kind of look at you. The chimpanzee was intimidating. So why are you talking about a chimpanzee? I'm just trying to relate. I can't relate to what power it is. That overcomes death. That takes death and makes it life. That gives life to death. That takes organs that don't function and makes them function again, as in the case of Lazarus. For whatever, for whatever caused Lazarus, there was a cause to his death. That, that takes not only in that situation, but goes above and beyond that to the resurrection of Christ, where his body was changed. And by the way, that's what John promises us. 
will be changed. His body was changed so it was no longer a natural body. It wasn't just a, a, you know, organs that were fixed and now functioned again. His body was changed so that it is immortal and will never suffer death again. And then, if that was, if that wasn't enough, based on that power, he installed Jesus over every other power on the face of the earth. Over every power that is, over every power that will come, over every realm, both here on earth and in the spiritual realm. That Jesus Christ is ruler of all those things. That's the immeasurable power of God. He, he lifts him, let me read to you what it says. And he and uh, he raised him from the dead and seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places. Remember, that's where Stephen saw him. As Stephen was being stoned, the Lord opened his eyes so that Stephen could know. And he saw Jesus and he said, I see the Son of Man seated in the right hand of the majesty on high. Or standing at the right hand of the majesty on high. It says here, He raised him from the dead and seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority, and power, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. There is no one you can name who has more power and authority than Jesus. Jesus is over all of them. He's over all of them. That's why the Apostle Paul can write, our weapons are not carnal, but are mighty to God, mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. That's this Jesus. That's why Paul said when we pray, things can happen. Why? Because Jesus is, is the authority over all of these things. Now, let me read to you one more thing here as we close. I'm going to go to the book of the Revelation. Think, think with me here. Kind of put yourself in this position. Verse, chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. So that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, um, I, I'm trying. To, I'm trying just to read this, but I, I've got to interject a couple things. This this thing was important. We don't know exactly. Bible scholars disagree on exactly what this scroll was. We know that when he opens it, judgments begin on the earth. We don't really know. People have. I don't know that it matters. Except it was very important. It was, and John knew it was important somehow. Without really knowing what it was, he knew it was important because he wept because there was no one worthy. Notice he said it was a mighty angel. 
He was impressed by this angel who said, who's going to open this? And then notice that this Jesus is described as the lion of the tribe of Judah. A Jew. The king of Jews. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb. As though it had been slain. With seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a lot, listen to this saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and I heard every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshipped this is the Jesus we serve. This is the Jesus whose power is immeasurable, whose position is above all positions, all names, all authority, all powers. This is the Jesus who Paul says is head over all things to the church. This is the Jesus who Paul says fills the church. He fills it. Folks, why do we fret? Why do we worry? Why do we fear? We fear because there are things that go on around about us. We fret and hassle and wrestle. And, and again, John was watching this whole thing in heaven, this whole scene in heaven unfold before him, and he wept. Caught up in the scene, he wept, and it was God showing us, and and, then the the loud angel said, don't cry. Excuse me, not the loud angel, the mighty angel said, don't cry. Look, the Lamb of God has prevailed, and he is worthy to open. There's no one else who's controlling these world events. There's no one else who's controlling the events of your life. There's no one else who can help you when you're lonely or you're despairing or you're depressed or you're distressed. The one who can help you when you have a need in your body or in your finances or in your home is this same Jesus who died and proved his worth 
by obeying his father and giving himself as a lamb to redeem people from all across the face of the earth. And at this one focal point of, 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 of time, yet time yet to come, in heaven, all of creation is focused on this one and his activity because he's going to, by opening that scroll, he's going to further the accomplishment of the redemption that will r- bring in the inheritance of all the believers. He's the basis of our hope. He's our Redeemer. And He's our Advocate. He ever lives to make intercession for us. And I'm at a loss. I just pray you read it. And I pray like Paul. Let the eyes of our understanding, the eyes of our heart be opened. Lord, let, let us see what only you can show us. Let us know what only you can reveal to us. Let us know it down in our heart of hearts. So in this tumultuous and temporary world, our faith will be on one who is beyond this world. Beyond its struggles who's conquered all and who is the king of kings. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and turn to him 326 Is that correct?